Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. It is good oh, to hear Amazing Grace sang by the saints. It's the closest thing we have to heaven on this side of eternity. Many thanks to Brother Grant and Diana, of course, for leading us in worship. And to many people, Brother Mike, Brother Travis, Jessica, many others who are working behind the scenes to prepare this building to house the body of Christ each week. A building is a building, however dear it is to us. But you, if you are born again, you are an indispensable member of the body of Christ. You awoke this morning and enjoyed the favor of God on your life. Whether you knew it, whether you sensed it, whether you acknowledged it. And that favor rested on us not because we are better than the thief on the cross, or a liar, or a criminal, or an abuser. We enjoy God's favor because we are in Christ. As the hymnist declared, nothing of myself I bring simply to the cross. I cling. Our hands are empty. We're debtors with nothing to bring. But helplessly throwing ourselves at the feet of the risen one. We don't even keep the crowns that we may earn by the good works which he's prepared beforehand in advance for us to do. Even those crowns are cast back at his feet. As we're reminded of this, it's very freeing that we are dependent creatures. Beautifully dependent. Wonderfully dependent. It's worry-free. None of my dependents or my children woke up this morning worried about what they would eat or drink or if they were loved or if they were safe. They're dependents. And so are we. Gloriously dependent. Indispensable members of the body of Christ who are woven into one another. Woven into Christ and dependent on Him. Amen? Amen. Well, last week was our introduction, our part one of a tale of four soils. Jesus introduces us to a parable that's unlike any other parable. As I began to absorb the enormity of it, I realized how this could have very easily been a ten-part series. But I don't want to bog us down, but I do want to encourage you in this respect. Even as we'll cover much in depth, there are areas to explore that could camp us here for months. Not only is it a rare moment of teaching in Mark's gospel, but it carries with it tremendous implications for so many areas of our Christian life and our Christian duty and indeed our understanding of many crucial doctrines. We're reminded last week of the context, the context into which Jesus is speaking this parable. He's entered into space and time at a moment in redemptive history that has everyone around him actively looking for the coming Messiah. What they saw as the military conquering hero there to free them from the oppression and the bonds of Roman tyranny. As far as prophecy goes, they knew what they were looking for. As far as the messianic miracles, the power over the demons, they knew what they were looking for. Even at the uneducated level, they knew. The Pharisees and the scribes, they knew in detail. They knew what they were looking at. And this, of course, prompted the commission of the unpardonable sin in chapter 3. Looking at the work of Christ in full view. Seeing him do it in front of their eyes and saying, this work is of Satan. And being this far into Jesus' ministry, having the crowds flock by the thousands, witnessing all that Jesus was doing, yet the vast, vast majority 
went away unchanged and unconverted in a time and space that was dedicated to looking for Messiah, almost all would leave. In fact, as we mentioned at the end of Christ's ministry on earth, not that there weren't more, but we only have 620 documented followers of Christ. 500 in Galilee, 120 in Jerusalem. That's it. This was a phenomenon that made no sense in the minds of the disciples or in the minds of true followers of Christ. As the man said in Luke 13, Lord, are there only a few being saved? This is why Jesus tells this parable, to explain why people respond to the gospel the way that they do. Jesus represents this as soils to these people, not because there's something hidden or or super spiritual about soils, but because these people were farmers. That's their language. Jesus wants to convey a spiritual truth with an analogy. Very simple. When we examined the parable last week, it was indeed very simple. Was it not? And it's the simplicity of it that is both so very encouraging and yet so very damning in the same stroke. To the saved, it is clear. It's brilliant. The lost, it makes no sense. Remember our analogy of the stained glass window. Right from the outside, a stained glass window looks completely unremarkable. Jesus is talking about agriculture. But to those on the inside, of the stained glass window. It looks completely different. The truth is in high definition color. But even here, while the eyes of the disciples have been opened and are being opened, they're still not understanding. Think about the process for the disciples. How many times did Jesus have to tell them that he must be crucified, that he will die and that he will rise again? Constantly. Yet even when it happened, just as he said it would, They were hiding in fear. Aren't we remarkable creatures that he is so patient with us? Annalise said in the kitchen the other day, she said, Dad, you know, being called sheep is not a compliment. Wise words, wise words. But along the path of the disciples' eyes being opened, we saw in Matthew's account of this parable that the disciples, they were in fact perturbed. They were even annoyed that Jesus was speaking to the people in parables. They were concerned about everyone else not getting it, right? Not in truth. Not in truth. Jesus puts his finger right on the matter of the heart. They did not get it themselves. And they were frustrated. But the purpose is not to conceal this matter from the disciples. So that it would be judgment upon them. No, he wants them to begin grasping these truths. Particularly these truths. And so he does something remarkable. Jesus explains the parable. So with that, let's dive into our text. Mark 4, 1 through 12. Mark 4, 1 through 12. Uh, correction, uh, 13 through 20. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones who are beside the road, where the word is sown. When they hear, Immediately Satan comes and he takes away the word which had been sown in them. And in a similar way, these are the ones being sown on the rocky places. Those who, when hearing the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but are only temporary. 
Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are those being sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for anything else enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones which were sown on the good soil. They who hear the word and accept it and are bearing fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundred as well. Heavenly Father, there are immense truths in here that we need to grasp. Help us. Lord, just as Philip asked the Ethiopian eunuch if he understood what he was reading, we need your Holy Spirit to illumine and teach us in this text that we might understand and apply this to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, my wonderful wife came into my study earlier this week and she asked me if this was going to be a fiery one this week. And I said, no, not really. This text has a tendency to already make people feel like pastor's been reading their journal. So we'll go easy. Now, we gave you a sneak peek last week at our first verse, didn't we? To mine this morning, because it gives critical context to what we're about to read. But let's refresh ourselves in that. We begin at verse 13. Verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? What exactly is Jesus getting at here? Well, he's saying exactly what he's saying. This parable is key. It's foundational. It's more than foundational. We can actually call this an enabling parable because the truths here are going to enable you to understand all the others. One theologian quipped, if they cannot add and subtract, it's scarcely imaginable that they'll be able to multiply and divide. Geometry, trigonometry, calculus will be hopeless. So there are core basic doctrines in here concerning Christology, meaning the the study of the person, the work, the nature of Christ, of discipleship, what that means, and the very narrow way of salvation. There are so many truths jam-packed into this that are so fundamental to understanding the very basics of our Christian law that Jesus is saying, if you don't get this one, if you don't build your house on this foundation, it will never stand. His disciples are going to be called, just as you are called, to go out into the world and to make disciples of all nations. And guess what? Most are not going to listen to you. I need to prepare you, and I need to prepare my church for this great commission that is going to seem like a complete failure. Of course, it's not, is it? But Jesus needs to redefine success for us as believers in our lives. What does success look like in the life of a believer? And in this case, in our evangelism, in walking out the Great Commission, in scattering the seed. The parable of the soils tells us as Christians that our success in this life, our success in evangelism in this life, is going to be defined not by results, but by obedience. But by obedience. That bears repeating because it matters. It's the golden key to not become discouraged with your results, of being able to rejoice when 99 out of 100 spit in your face. My joy in that moment, my contentment, my success is driven and defined by my obedience. 
The obedience is ours. The results are God's. Are we seeing that overarching theme here? Lord, Lord, are there only a few being saved? Yes, narrow is the way that leads to salvation. Few find it. Therefore, be encouraged in your obedience. The great evangelist George Whitfield declared, quote, I was honored today with having a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cat thrown at me. End quote. Why did that honor him? Why did that bless him? Because he was obedient. Whitfield knew the parable of the soils. Ninety-nine threw dead cats and rotten eggs at me. But oh, there was one. There was one. And even if there's not one, because we understand this principle, because we understand the soils of the heart, every single evangelistic encounter is a guaranteed success. Every one. Just consider that. What else in life are you guaranteed success 100% of the time? Evangelism. Oh, brother, we did a crusade and we preached the gospel night after night and only two came to repentance and faith. Great. Great. Jesus is preparing his disciples here. He's preparing you for an endeavor that the world's standards would call a complete failure. What else in the world? Where else in the world could you say, I received 100% rejection and was 100% successful? That's the message. Here's why people will respond how they do to the gospel. Why most will reject you. So take heart and just be obedient. And in patience, Jesus gives a step-by-step explanation for us. So thankful for this. Look at our simplicity. Verse 14, Mark 4, 14. The sower sows the word. Who's the sower right here? Jesus Christ. He is the original sower. He's the head sower. And he is going to save. He is going to deputize more sowers. And they're going to go into all the world. And they're going to make disciples of all nations. If you have come to faith in Christ through repentance, you are a sower. And what does a sower do? He sows. Let's not complicate things. You sow. The Greek word here for sowing is written in the present tense. Guess what that means? It means it's constant. It's habitual. It's part of the very fabric of your lifestyle. You are a sower. You sow all day, every day. If that sounds a bit daunting or even a bit exhausting, consider that Jesus doesn't welcome you into his rest in heaven because you were busy always resting down here. There's work to be done. There's work to be done, people. 155,000 people will perish today. 6,500 people will die during the course of this sermon. Most without Christ. Forever in hell. That's the reality. The sower sows the word. The product is supplied to you. What is the seed? The seed is the word of God. Meaning you are doing no more than giving what has already been given to you. You're a beggar trying to show other beggars where to find bread. We're fellow gift receivers. You are passing along what you have received. Every person here is here because someone was a sower in their life. Someone threw seed on your soil somewhere in your life. 
Without exception, someone scattered the word on you. The preached word, the spoken word, evangelism, other believers, these are the unbelievable vessels that God has chosen to disseminate and to scatter and sow the word. It's unbelievable. I would have chosen a different way. No. And when the word goes out, when we hoist the bag of seed over our shoulders and we broadcast the seed into every nook and every cranny, Jesus tells his disciples that you're going to hit one of four soils. That's what's going to happen. One of four soils occupies every human heart. Let's look at these together. The first soil explained, verse 15. And these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. Now this one can throw you for a second. I know it did me. Because of how it's written, Satan seems to be the culprit in this one, doesn't he? Does he not? The devil did it. The devil made me do it. And indeed, he is at work here in this soil. But the culprit here is not Satan. Satan is doing what Satan does. He steals, he kills, he destroys. That's his function. But this is a parable of the soils, not of Satan. What enabled Satan to come and take away the seed? Hard soil. Hard soil. An unresponsive and calloused heart, beaten down by the foot traffic. The birds are always there. They're always hovering over, seeking to destroy. That's not noteworthy. How were they able to do that? How were the birds able to come and destroy? That is the point. What hardens soil? Unbelief? Sin? Every time we silence that still small voice of the Holy Spirit, the soil is trampled on one more time until eventually we are given over. The gospel can wash over us, and as soon as it leaves the mouth of the Christian onto the soil, it's eaten up. It's gone. Satan is not to blame here, per se. It's the hard soil that's to blame. It was made this way by continued unbelief, by habitual sin, and now as we've seen many times before, you cannot hear why, because you will not. Dr. MacArthur writes, quote, The Old Testament would call them hard-hearted. And stiff-necked. They are resolute and rigid in their dis- in their indifference, disinterest, and love of sin. This is the condition of the heart, which corresponds to the hardness of the footpath around the field. The heart of this kind of person is a thoroughfare. It is crossed by the mixed multitude of iniquities that traverse it day after day after day. And it's not fenced, so it lies exposed to all the evil stompings of everything that comes along. It's never broken up. It's never plowed by conviction. It's never plowed by self-searching, self-examination, contrition, honest assessment of guilt, and repentance. The heart is callous. It's callous to the sweet reasonings of grace. And it's callous to the fearful terrors of judgment. They don't care. Nothing wrong with the seed. The seed is fine. Nothing wrong with the sower. The sower's fine. Something terribly wrong with a hard and impenitent heart. But the Holy Spirit do a work of pouring water over that soil and mixing it and turning it and plowing it up afresh. That is a hopeless soil. Yet did the sower sow there? Yes. Yes, they did. Why? Because we don't know who God is saving. 
It's not our job to forecast that. We don't save someone to begin with. The elect don't come with a big E on their forehead. This immediately reminded me of the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He often took fire from both sides of the theological spectrum. The hyper-Calvinists on one side saying, don't bother with evangelism. God will save whom he will save. And of course, he took fire from those who closed their minds to the truth of election. They would tell Spurgeon, if you believed as you did, you would only preach to the elect. They would jeer him. They would mock him. Why waste your time on those who are not? Which Spurgeon replied, very well. Very well. Next Sunday morning, chalk them all on the back. And when you've done that, I will preach to them. But the chalking of them on the back is the difficulty. We cannot do that. And we cannot. The best way is for us to leave our God to carry out the purposes of his distinguishing grace in his own effectual way and not attempt to do what we certainly can never accomplish. There, scatter a handful of seed by the wayside. Even if the birds of the air devour it, there is plenty more where that came from. And it would be a pity for us to leave any portion unsown because we were miserly or stingy with our master's seed. That's why we scatter the seed everywhere. Spurgeon went on to say, if the Lord had put a yellow stripe down the backs of the elect, I'd go up and down the street lifting up shirt tails, finding out who had the yellow stripe, and then I'd give them the gospel. But God didn't do it that way. He told me to preach the gospel to every creature that whosoever will may come. Jesus says, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So, my friend, you can argue about election all you want to, but you can come. And if you come, he'll not cast you out. Even if that ground looks hard, we do not spare seed. And you could look at this beaten path and know by all earthly wisdom that nothing can grow there. Nothing. It's not your seed to spare. So cast it. Cast it. The power is not in the sower. And thank goodness the power is not in the seed. The word of God is what does the work. Or in the soil. The word of God is what does the work. First Peter 1, 23 and 25. For if you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which was preached to you. So our first soil is hard. It's calloused. And yet we're all sowers and we sow the word there as well. We don't examine which soil to cast upon. We broadcast it liberally. Second soil, verses 16 and 17. I'll read them as one. And in a similar way, these are the ones being sown on the rocky places. Those who, when hearing the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Well, some will recall from last week are highlighting that limestone bedrock, right? That lies just underneath the surface in almost all of Israel. This is what Jesus has in mind here. You can't see it, yet it's just below the plow deck. How insidious. That means you're able to plow it. It looks nice and rich and turned up. And look, we've even got green shoots springing up. 
And a little while later, wow, we really have green shoots springing up, higher and faster than all the rest. Caution. Caution. Unlike today, these folks were much more readily identifiable in the early church. Why? Because they suffered what? Persecution and affliction. Many even followed Jesus around the Galilee area, seeming to listen to his teaching. They went even beyond the base crowd of curiosity seekers and those who wanted their needs met. In the absence of opposition, in the absence of persecution or affliction, these seem like the real McCoy. These guys seem like the real deal. Yet from yet when opposition from Rome or the government or opposition from the legalists, the Pharisees struck, where are they now? Where are they now? If you fret that persecution is coming to the American church, do not. God is doing a purifying work in his church through this oncoming wave. I've shared this with many people that the church fares very poorly in times of prosperity. We thrive under opposition. If the opposition did not come, tares will remain in large number among the wheat. They may be your tallest green shoots, but they're only temporary. They have no firm root in themselves. And when affliction and persecution arrive, why? Verse 17, because of the word, they fall away. Saints, permit me a slight detour at this point. This seems a good time to remind us as the church, as the ecclesia, as the called out ones, everything you see happening in our world today, the corruption, the persecution, the seeming overwhelming surges of secularism, America, a beacon on a hill that seems to be going out before our very eyes. Take heart. All of this, every negative news story you hear, every heart-wrenching act, every step we see towards societal breakdown or chaos, please remember, he is doing all of this for his church. God's gaze is not fixed on the wicked. His gaze is fixed on the church which he ransomed and paid the highest price for, the jewel of his eye in Christ. God loved his son more than anything. And because he loves his son so, he loves what his son purchased with his life's blood, his church. But it's even more personal than that, saints. Yes, all that he is doing, he is doing to grow and to purify, to disciple and to discipline his bride, the church. Yes, corporately, as a body, but also individually. He is doing all of this with our sanctification in mind. Do you mean that God has me in mind specifically when he allowed fill in the blank to happen in our world or in our country? Yes, that's what scripture shows. You can't purify something corporately until you purify it individually. You were in mind. Your growth daily becoming more like Christ than you were yesterday. God had that in mind when orchestrating world events. Isn't that remarkable? Might knowing that change your prayer life? Might knowing that change how you view the world around you? Look at the lengths God is willing to go for His glory. And for your good, He was willing to flood the world, giving every living creature, killing every living creature to preserve a remnant for His glory. Yes, He loathed the wicked to wipe them out. He also loved Noah and his family, as beacons of righteousness. He flooded the world. But he promised not to do that again. Next time he's going to melt the world. He's going to melt it with a fervent heat. I'm not sure which one I would choose. 
and yet all for His glory and for our good, corporately and individually. If you turn on the news or read that article or witness atrocity or tragedy, put on your biblical lenses. This is all working for His church. The world thinks this is all about them. They think they're in control. That they killed God in the marketplace or that they're squeezing out His church. The very one they believe they have killed is actually the one driving this entire train. And He is bringing you safely home to eternity. He is completing the good work that He began in you. Back to our text, our second soil. Hitting the limestone bedrock. It's springing up quickly. Persecution, affliction, which will and must come. And we praise God that it must come for His glory and for our good. But what's the difference between the first soil and the second soil? What's the real difference? It just took a while to see. That's all. The end result was the same. No fruit. No fruit. They're enthusiastic on the outside, but it's just a veneer. They've likely responded to the gospel call of emotionalism or by following feelings or a charismatic speaker. Notice there's no altar call at Harrison Hills. There's no tugging at the heartstrings of your emotion. No. Go home. Consider this gospel. Count the cost. If the Lord is saving you, wild horses couldn't keep you out of this house. Let the weight of the gospel sit on your chest tonight as you sleep. I don't need to call you to the altar. You'll run to the altar. Such is true conversion. Adrian Rogers once said, quote, Salvation is the deepest work of God. Your emotions are the shallowest part of your life. God does not do his deepest work in the shallowest part. But this soil, that bedrock is right underneath it. At the first sign of self-sacrifice or hardship or of being uncomfortable or offended, they're gone. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. First John 2.19 The rock will stop any true discipleship. It's all superficial. It may even be cultural. Bless God, my family's five generations in this church. I was raised in that pew right over there, Pastor. Wonderful. I love to hear it. Are you born again? Are you born again? We may not know these folks until persecution or a test comes. And so let it come. He will be with us. It says they will fall away. End of verse 17. This is the word scandalizo, where we get the word scandal from. Scandalizo is also translated offense. In Matthew 11, 6, 13, 57, and 15, 12. To be read literally, it means the offense that causes them to fall away scandalizes them. That's the literal reading. It causes them to stumble. There are many things we could put under the umbrella of offense that cause one to stumble. Offense is itself a hardship, and it will come, and it will have this effect on this city. They will fall away. Scandalizo. They will stumble. They will be offended. They'll fall away. But there's some good news for this soil. There's some very good news for this soil. The Lord told the prophet Jeremiah, Is not my word like fire and like a hammer which breaks the rock? God specializes in breaking up and removing those limestone barriers if you repent. He has the right hammer for the job. So much more to say on this second soil, but we press forward to our third soil. Verses 18 and 19, I'll read them as one. 
and others are those being sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for anything else in enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. There's a well-known saying that if you can't say amen, say ouch. Indeed. Welcome to thorny soil. You thought number two soil was insidious with its layer of rock just underneath that plow depth stopping any true discipleship. But at least had we dug, we could find the rock. We could say, ah, here's the culprit. Not so with this third one. This soil is beautiful. It's rich. It's black. It's moist. Dig down deep. Ah, no limestone. The roots are clear. There's no boulders. We've got ourselves a real convert here. This is good soil. Danger here lies undetected. It's completely invisible to the sower. Talk about insidious. Every year, right around early April, my lawn comes to life. The grass comes alive from hibernating all winter, and here comes the green. Yay, and I start dusting off the skag mower. Not a week after that grass comes alive, without fail, our lawn is covered in what? Dandelions! Weeds! And they are everywhere! Yet the seed was completely invisible. And as the grass began to sprout and grow, the weeds grew up right along with it. The Apostle James would call my lawn double-minded. Are you a field of weeds or are you a field of grass? They're both growing. And indeed, double-minded is the right adjective here. It's the right descriptive. Our affections are split in this soil. Our gaze is not fixed on the author and the perfecter of our faith. This is a dividing soil. This is a soil that averts your gaze, that clamors for your attention and your affection. The first seed, that seed couldn't even get in. The second seed, it couldn't get down. The third seed, this is choked off. It's cut in two. It's crowded out with three insidious weeds. Three weeds grow alongside the seed, choking it out. What are they? Jesus says they're the worries of the world. They're the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for anything else. This sucks the nutrients out of the soil. It sucks the oxygen out of the room. Their commitment is only a partial commitment. But we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ does not share heart space with anyone. Where he resides, he will reign. Imagine the king of kings sitting next to whatever idolatry we put up in our lives. You want to know what happens when God's presence is forced to share space with an idol. You can really read about the Philistine god Dagon in 1 Samuel 5. That will give you a very vivid illustration. Three insidious weeds that need to be yanked out of the soil of our heart post-haste. The first we see are the worries of the world. Anxiety. Why is this first? Why can this not reside in your heart next to a living, breathing hope? Because worry and anxiety is functional atheism. We are looking at the world around us, at the events in our own lives, at a situation, at a trial, and we immediately turn into functional atheists. God doesn't know this is happening. God doesn't know I exist. God's not going to do anything in this situation. Or more often for believers, God got it wrong. God missed it. God's holding out on me. Fret, fret, 
worry, worry. It's functional atheism, and it's rightly defined in Scripture as sin. To worry is to tell God that he's not God. That's the first weed in this soil that has to go. And saints, this may be a big, nasty, two-foot-tall weed for you in one consistent area of your life, I don't know. Or it may be small and broken into a million little parts that are scattered all over your lawn. Just that little bit in every area, that little bit of worry that gnaws at you in every area. Big or small, it's going to soak the nutrients. It's going to kill the seed. Get it out. Root it out today. The cure for worry is a heart conviction and laser-like focus on God's sovereignty. Charles Spurgeon called it the soft pillow on which I lay my hand. Worry has no place in the life of the believer. He is God or he is not. Make a choice and go all in. This soil is double-minded. Pick a side and go all in. The second weed in this soil is the deceitfulness of riches. We're drawn immediately to 1 Timothy 6.9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. We're drawn to the story of the rich young ruler, aren't we? This, this deceitfulness is talking about giving a false impression. It means it's talking about beguilement. It's talking about seduction. In other words, it's a lie. The promises contained in those extra zeros on a bank account or whatever else we heap upon our lust, it's an illusion. Here today, gone tomorrow. Behind every sin is a lie. Behind the love of wealth is deceit. The promise is a mirage. And you can spend your whole life chasing that mirage, trying to secure your life like a hamster on a wheel. But saints, the ultimate deception of riches, of wealth, is the immediate role it occupies in our life as a functional Messiah. It seeks to do for us every single thing that God says he wants to do for us. Here's the thing about functional messiahs. They always fail you. That's why our world is in such, is such an angry place. That's one of the main reasons people are as they are. Because they've propped up functional messiahs all along in their lives, and those messiahs keep letting them down time and time again. They're designed to fail. Only one messiah can fill that role. That we continually put material things, and even people, into roles they were never meant to fill. And they fail. As all functional messiahs do. The deceitfulness of riches, we must root it out. Worry serves as functional atheism. Riches serve as a functional messiah. Unless there be any open door of confusion. Or looking for a loophole like we all love to do. Jesus says it plainly in the third reading, verse 19. And the desires for anything else. There is the word or there is the world. These two are at enmity with one another. We cannot hold the world in one hand and Christ in the other. That's a fool's errand. A very dangerous tightrope. Jonathan Edwards wrote, quote, It is folly to depend upon a righteousness that is imperfect and mixed with sin. The holy God will only accept the perfect righteousness of Christ. Imputed to us, end quote. Notice the text says they enter in. They enter in. See that? 
There's something we need to catch here. This verb here is given in the present tense. What does that mean? It means it's constant. The weeds are not a one-off attack that you're going to go dig up that weed and declare victory and wave your flag. This deceitfulness, desiring to enter in, is going to be constant on this side of eternity. That's what that means. That's what this is saying. So tend your garden. Tend your soil. What am I supposed to do when the first few dandelions start popping up in the lawn? I'm down buying bags of weed and feed, and we put it in the spreader, and my kids walk row by row. I don't. This worry, this deception of riches, the desires that will come, that will seek to capture the throne of your heart. Jesus is telling us here that they will never stop trying to enter on this side of eternity. It will be constant. So gird up your loins. That means put on your pants and get in the fight. Weed that garden. Tend to that lawn. Watch your soil. And sadly, the verb choke here is also in the present tense. It also will never stop. So what's the answer? John 15, 4 and 5. Abide in me. Abide in me. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If we abide in him, there is great hope and great promises. Our last verse, verse 20. I do so love this. Mark 4, verse 20. And those are the ones which were sown on the good soil. They who hear the word and accept it and are bearing fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. This soil is good. It possesses excellent qualities. The soil of the heart, this soil of the heart, has been prepared by none other than the Holy Spirit. Understand this, saints. No man possesses this soil on his or her own. You were born in sin. You were dead in our trespasses and sins. Guess what the word dead means here in the Greek? It means dead. Not half alive. Not seeking after and choosing God. You were dead. This soil, this beautiful soil that is giving us this return, it's a gift. Just like your faith is a gift. Just like your salvation is a gift. This soil does not exist naturally in the hearts of men. Not anywhere. Not ever. This is a supernatural work of God. This is heaven's potting soil. And trademark The temptation to want to inject our own goodness or abilities into this multifold return, into this good soil, is tantalizingly tempting. But you were dead. He gave you life. We must lay down our pride and embrace that. It's in every page of scripture. They who hear the word and accept it. They who hear the word and accept it. You say, I hear you, pastor. We accept it. What does that mean? What does it mean? What does it look like to accept this? What does that look like? Accept. Paradecomai. means deliberately, willingly, favorably, and readily. And the tense of the verb? Continually. Continually. One theologian put it as, quote, putting out the welcome mat for the gospel. I like that. It's always there. 
To come to your door is to see that mat. It's the most defining part of your house. It's your life. If someone knows you, they know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most important thing in your life. Show me a friend. Show me a neighbor you've had for five years. What would they say that you are all about? What would they say you're about? You hear it, you accept it. And because you accept it, what happens? You bear fruit. 30, 60, and 100 fold. Put in percentages, that's 3,000, 6,000, and 10,000 percent. John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus said in John 15, 8, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. A Christian who does not bear fruit is not a Christian. If that's a controversial statement in your ears, you've believed a lie somewhere along the way. Repent and believe the gospel. Any tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. No, this soil, this good soil, are those whose roots go down deep. These are the roots we read about in Fox's Book of Martyrs, where your entire family is wiped out before you. But the anchor holds. The roots go down deep. Jesus is encouraging his disciples here, and he's encouraging us that there is a remnant, there is a people, there is a soil that Satan cannot touch. Unless we be like a dog returning to its vomit in our own sins and lusts, which we need never do, the world cannot touch this seed. It is good soil. It produces good fruit, and it keeps going. Let us remember the purpose of this blessed parable. Why will those around you respond the way they do to the gospel? Why should we be encouraged in evangelism? It is God who has gone before you to this endeavor. You are going to have the opportunity to plant seed in heaven's potting soil. And it cannot fail. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. And yet this is a parable. Not just any parable, but a foundational stone that allows you to understand all the others. The parable of the soils is like the cloud that separated the fleeing Israelites from the pursuing Egyptians, bringing darkness to one side and beautiful light to the other. That which was blindness to Egypt is revelation to Israel. The same event was either a vehicle of light or of darkness depending on one's stance with God. And so it is today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to till the soil of your soul. Thank him for the seed that's been scattered here this morning. The prophet Hosea, he wrote, Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to reign righteousness on you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, you have done all things well. Lord, we know that it is the word that pierces between the bone and the marrow right into the joint, Lord. 
Lord, we know that this text, we do not read it, but it reads us. Lord, we ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would till the soil, that the seed that has been scattered may find good ground, may bring increase. Lord, we know that Satan desires to come and steal this word the moment that we walk out of here today. Lord, let it dwell richly within us, that your righteousness might be lifted up in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.